0: You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. In case you haven't heard, there's an entirely new economy being built right under our noses. No, I'm not talking about fintech or digital banking or even open banking, although it does play a role. These are mere background noise by comparison. This brave new economic world doesn't run on dollars or pounds, or rubles, or won. It is open to anyone, from anywhere, and is fundamentally immune to corruption. And it doesn't need banks. Well, not the kinds we know today, anyway. I'm talking, of course, about the world of cryptocurrency. Entirely digital currencies, not backed by any state, which now have a combined value ...of over $2 trillion. That's trillion. With a T. While this still only represents about 0.5% of the roughly $400 that is global wealth... ...the fact that there even is an alternative to the current system... ...is something entirely new. For those who think crypto is only about currency, think again. While that was true in the early days... More modern cryptocurrencies aim much higher providing programmable open platforms to build the financial instruments of the future. These new tools aim to recreate and radically improve the centuries old systems we have today. A movement that has come to be known as decentralized finance or DeFi. On this episode our guest helps decipher the newly emerging world of DeFi, exploring its history, how it builds on top of crypto, its relationship to open banking, and its role in the even grander transition to Web 3.0. Lex Sokolin is a futurist and entrepreneur helping to usher in the next generation of financial services contributing thought leadership articles to publications such as The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and Bloomberg, and speaking regularly at industry conferences. He's also held several roles in investment management at Barclays, Lehman Brothers, and Deutsche Bank. Today, Lex is the head economist of decentralized protocols at ConsenSys, and in his current role, he focuses on crypto economics, digital assets, and as we'll learn more about today, decentralized finance. He's also the host of Signal, a podcast aiming to empower the technology ecosystem and share inspiring stories about the future of finance, crypto, and the Web3 world. Lex, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: At this point, in the middle of 2021, most people have heard of cryptocurrency. However, many still equate it with a single currency, Bitcoin. But that's not the only one out there is it?
1: That's an open-ended prompt. It's a good starting point for understanding what this crypto ecosystem even means. What is it that it even does? And I think even just the framing, the word crypto for people, I think comes with these impressions of piracy and things of that nature. Just that entire impression, that, that entire brush is is wrong. It's definitely not what the space is about. At this stage, we are building an industry that's anchored in hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people all over the world. There are hundreds of billions of assets connected into projects from the largest banks and financial institutions in the world and explored by governments from nearly every single country. The word crypto stands for cryptography. And cryptography is the reason you can use the internet, the reason that you can trust some website that encrypts your information when you're sending your credit card number. And so cryptography really stands for pretty complicated math that is used to secure and make private information. And as we know from the last 20 years of the internet, the original sin of the internet, despite its kind of utopian attempts at a free society has been to betray people's privacy and their data for cents on the dollar in order to generate very large advertising revenue streams for what are now the mega cap tech monopolies. And we didn't know that we would end up here, but we did. And so invoking this idea of mathematics and software and technology that is meant to give sovereignty and privacy and and dignity and respect back to people when they are out there on their own in the digital world surrounded by algorithms run by large corporations that's the soul that's the promethean fire of this industry what
0: makes bitcoin so exciting why has it captured people's attention and investment
1: in such a major way there are different parts of it that people latch onto. And it's important to understand and disambiguate the different parts. And so the first is the gold bug narrative. That is, you know, the Federal Reserve is inflating trillions of U.S. dollars. Purchasing power is going down. Therefore, you should buy gold and bunker up as society collapses. And this narrative, the sort of anti-Federal Reserve Central Bank narrative, Timeless, ageless, and not necessarily wrong, but is really, it's in part, the philosophy that inspired a technology. So the next question is, what is the technology? What is underneath Bitcoin that makes it special? And in which way is it special? And so the blockchain underneath Bitcoin, which is the decentralized distributed ledger that accounts for value, it does something really special that no other technology does. And it's a real invention. As people increasingly live in the digital world, there are no objects that are scarce. Nothing is unique. If I have money in a bank account, that's not real money. It's just a number in an Excel file or a CSV in the bank. And if it moves from one place to another, it's just a bunch of messages. Nothing has any real meaning. It's just systems that are trying to sync. Whereas on a blockchain, the unit that the blockchain keeps track of is scarce in a way that a physical object in the real world is scarce. If you have a dollar in your pocket, nobody else has that, and it's yours. And if you have something I want, I can give you that dollar, and you can give me that thing, and we have economic exchange, and then you have that dollar, and I don't. And when we look at how payments rails or banking rails do this in the traditional sense, to call it a mess would be unbelievably kind. The blockchain generates this attribute of digital scarcity through complex mathematics and cryptography and consensus mechanisms. And so Bitcoin is, in a sense, the first digital asset. And it comes baked together with a narrative about fixed supply, no inflation relative to the dollar and therefore accruing value and therefore uh, being the sort of apocalypse hedge. But there was a, a second breakthrough in the last five years on top of this idea of digital scarcity. And the second breakthrough is what's causing the, the crypto renaissance in 2021. That breakthrough is that not only can you put some container, some asset, a digital commodity, onto a chain, but you can put computation meaning that it can run any other program a computer does this uh, on your laptop or on your phone or on a mainframe, you can put that on a blockchain. And so you can have computation that is run by machines and decentralized nodes all over the world that syncs together on an agreement of shared truth. And through that is able to build fantastical software machines that are able to actually intermediate Markets, digital markets that can encompass any asset class, uh, any exposure, any token, any object. We've had this combination of being able to write software, which means transforming financial markets and media markets and the economy in general, on top of these digitally native and scarce tokens, which essentially are absorbing the human economy into a new realm. This new feature you describe,
0: the one that adds computation and the ability to write programs, is commonly called smart contracts. Can we dig into that a
1: bit? What exactly are smart contracts and what makes them so important? When you write a piece of code... know let's say you're writing code for a mainframe in this in the 70s you're feeding that code into the machine and then it performs a series of operations to whatever transformation function from your input one plus one right and it's supposed to output two and so you fed it one plus one and it crunches the numbers and out comes two as the answer and that transformation function could be much more much more complex so for example The transformation function could be, Amazon, what's the weather today? You know, some transformation function, and the answer is it's 60 degrees in New York. Software can do either of these things, sort of the the difference is just difficulty of degree. And then you might start putting that same set of information into a phone, but your phone is largely connected to some large cloud infrastructure, Amazon Web Services, Google's cloud infrastructure. And so there are big computers there that do that computation and bring back the answer. With Ethereum, the computation is actually done by this mesh of nodes. And each node is just a a computer, a software machine. So I might have a laptop that's that's running an Ethereum node. And then another 100,000 people might as well. And through, through a mechanism, we agree on what the truth is. And we're all executing that software, one plus one, and we're all coming out with the answer of two. And so the question of what is a smart contract is a question of how do you write code? How do you write that sort of transformation function, the one plus one equals two, or the hello, Alexa, what's the weather, into the overall system?
0: So if I follow the way a cryptocurrency like Ethereum, executes smart contracts is similar to how Bitcoin validates transactions in this distributed, decentralized way, right? Are are the two similar?
1: There's a bit of a distinction. So if you think about Bitcoin, let's simplify, uh, and maybe this is a bit unkind, but Bitcoin's just got Bitcoin on it. And so the role of the network in the case of Bitcoin is to make sure that the Bitcoin is really there and that it is really, really true, whatever the history is that's recorded on chain, congealing all possibilities into the single timeline and validating that timeline to be true. And so what miners do is they participate in a game theoretical game between each other in order to validate the blocks to make sure that the timeline is true. Now. Ethereum has this mechanism too. And without overcomplicating it, let's just say that there are miners, they do certain work. So you can play this, what's called a layer one or base layer game, this validation of what is the timeline? How is it true, right? And this is sort of going back to creating the digital scarcity, creating the threat of reality in a digital world. However, smart contracts are not something that Bitcoin does and are something that Ethereum does. And so people will deploy code to the Ethereum network. And then let's say somebody wants to interact with a smart contract. So you're walking along and on the Ethereum blockchain, there's a vending machine that says, put in one ETH and get one DAI. And so they're now uh, little businesses or little vending machines, little Decentralized applications that are not wedded into the core protocol machinery of is this the truth? Is this the real timeline? That's separate. Rather, within the agreed-upon timeline, there are now applications that are sprouting up. And they're, you know, they're made of smart contracts, they're made of code, it's it's all the same thing. And so when people come up to these vending machines, and they want something out of them, they're gonna pay them. And so they'll pay them in the form of whatever it is that they want to transform, right? So if they want to transform some particular picture or asset, they'll offer that up. And then second, they will pay for the pleasure of having this vending machine compute. This part is not free. It it costs what's called gas, but end of the day is just a, a fee to have the network generate computation for you. And the reason it costs money to use the network is because there's lots of other people who are lined up behind you who also want to use that same vending machine. You know, there's a lot of demand for being able to participate and use these decentralized applications. And so when you execute a smart contract or when you, you um, initiate some sort of transaction that has programmability in it, that's going to cost additional gas in order to power that computation on Ethereum. And then you might get a series of outcomes that are sometimes very novel and different you know whether they're asset management or derivatives or lending or insurance there's lots of different software now in the network that does these things
0: so whereas bitcoin is limited to this base game of validating transactions etc smart contracts on currencies like ethereum let you create all sorts of games on top of that base layer, effectively
1: unlimited functionality. Is that right? That's right. And the word games implying economic games. So the American economy is, in a sense, a game theoretical game with an equilibrium and supply and demand and lots of market incentives and specialization and so on. And similarly, within the digital economy of Ethereum, or what people often refer to as Web3, which is uh, Ethereum with lots of supporting technologies. And you can think of Web1 being the static HTML web, and you can think of Web2 being the Facebook, uh, Google Apps, Google Docs, sort of interactive software server-based web. Web3 is this internet of value that has digital assets and digital objects in it. The vision for Web3 is for, for people to come in and transact there natively to own their own assets, to own their data, to have their privacy and to opt into participating in, in the types of things that they want to do and the types of communities that they want to be a part of. That was a lot.
0: So let's do a bit of a recap. Cryptocurrency started with a story a story about how the current economic system is broken and how technology could make a better one. That idea led to Bitcoin and eventually other currencies whose value was based on built-in scarcity, like a sort of digital gold. Lex describes it as an apocalypse hedge, a bet against the fiat currencies of the world. But more recently, a new invention was added to the mix smart contracts. Cryptocurrencies that adopted smart contracts, like Ethereum, could be programmed, programmed to execute whatever behavior the coder wanted automatically. Suddenly, crypto assets didn't have to just sit there like a pile of gold, they could be moved and worked like a stock or a loan. This led to an explosion of new applications built using smart contracts, the vending machines Lex describes. All of them decentralized across the blockchain. Hence the name Decentralized Applications, or dApps. It is these dApps that have started to form the early fabric of an entirely new financial system. Far from being limited to digital currencies, D-apps enable crypto to easily mimic the financial products that exist in traditional markets today, and then to build upon those products in ways that the existing systems simply couldn't manage. Some even believe that this digitally native system of value exchange will play a pivotal role in the evolution of the Internet itself, as it transforms into Web 3.0. The emergence of these new tools and the communities surrounding them has been dubbed decentralized finance or by its all too fitting acronym defi
1: that's where Lex and I go next
0: what in your words is defi
1: one of the fun things about the space is there are a lot of young people in it and there are a lot of internet natives and so you know it's kind of dressed up in all of these foreign words but If we boil it down, the fact that people can code means that they wrote financial software. That's the full thing. There's nothing else to it. So smart contracts is just people being able to code, and DeFi, end of the day, is financial software. There's a really simple map for this, which is you look at any industry, and you're going to have a place where things are made, like a factory. And then you're going to have a place where the thing is sold, like a store. You know, So you make the car in the factory and you sell it in the car lot. You make the food in the back of the restaurant and you sell it in the front. Finance isn't special or different. It's the same thing. You have a factory where the financial products are made. So think about... A hedge fund, an asset management product, a depository holding like a bank account, a loan underwriter generating some sort of risk exposure in, into a fixed income product and so on. And then you've got a store, which is where stuff is bought. It used to be that people were the store, the bank branches, the financial advisors, the private bankers, the, the loan officers. And increasingly, it's the web and the phone that's the store, Robinhood, Revolut, Chime, and so on. Fintech, over the last 20 years, the last decade especially, has put a lot of leverage, venture capital leverage, into rebuilding distribution, rebuilding the digital storefront. You know, so putting the human into the phone and selling financial products digitally. And so we hear of disruption and transformation and everybody thinks things are free and so on and so forth. But to me, this is disingenuous. Despite all this stuff about putting things into the phone and prices collapsing, we don't really have a disruptive moment because the things that are being sold online are still the exact same things that were being built in the finance factories 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, running on the same core banking systems, uh, the same portfolio management systems, and so on. It was like a Spotify of CD ROMs. It's essentially nonsense the way that the packaging of the industry happens today. And so DeFi is the first breakthrough for the manufacturing side of the business. It is a way for people to build financial instruments in a way that is radically different from how the financial backend of the industry is today. You have a software rail that is almost custom built for the transfer of value. It has full transparency, and therefore you can have all the KYC, AML that you want. It has full auditability, so 2008 would never happen because you know in real time everyone's exposure. And so you got this set of capabilities, and then you have an absolute influx of global innovators trying to write open source software that essentially does what Broadridge and Investnet and Temenos and Jack Henry and Fiserv do today, the back-end infrastructure of finance. For me, DeFi is the disruptive thing that at least I've been waiting for as an entrepreneur in the space, to see some real kind of industry-wide change come in and really refactor what it means to make financial products We've had now the tail wagging the dog for about 10 years, and I think this development is what flips it on its head.
0: The same kind of monetary chemistry that banks and central bankers used in the 2008 crisis and since then the tranching and the bundling and the pools, that's all available to regular people now thanks to DeFi.
1: Anybody can manufacture their own financial instrument. What this software does is essentially open sources and makes available for free to anyone to access the type of machinery that used to live only within the investment management or capital markets, deposit large banks of the world. It's not just about the usage, it's about the community writing code together and Innovating how to make this better, meaning the turnover by which the software gets improved is unbelievably rapid. Just as an example, the value in DeFi over the last year and a half has gone from 500 million to something like 75 billion today. There is a a very large portion of the world which is engaging with these financial constructs as part of their regular portfolio. And
0: folks like yield farmers are essentially moving their crypto around between these different pools and instruments trying to find the best deal is that right
1: in today's market structure you're you're not expected to outsource to one particular genius all the fixed income trading that you need for your portfolio you've got options Once it was clear that there are many places where interest rates could be generated, this concept of farming came around. You can trace it to gold farming in video games where you do some particular activity in order to get a reward. Or like in mobile games like Farmville, where you do some repetitive task and then you get uh, magic internet points. And so similarly, farming is... You know, taking your capital, putting it into a place that you think has a a high interest rate and then kind of accruing that interest rate and figuring out how to manage what is essentially a fixed income investment with an active bend.
0: Another asset class in the DeFi world that has really taken everyone by surprise is non-fungible tokens, NFTs. They have rocked the art world over the past year or so.
1: What are NFTs? First off, if you think about money, if you think about you know, cash or, or digital dollars, money is fungible, meaning that you don't care if you have this dollar bill or this dollar bill. If you have um, a photograph of a cat or if you have the Mona Lisa, those two are pretty different things. And in that way, they're not fungible. They're, they're not the same. They're not exchangeable for each other. And so tokens, which are just the digital version of a, a scarce object in, in the blockchain world, tokens can similarly be fungible or non-fungible. Ethereum and the ETH token that powers Ethereum is fungible. You don't care if you have this ETH or that ETH. It's just a unit of one. But with non-fungible tokens what you're talking about is something that is particular or something that is unique. And so you can think of it as a digital object. The core kind of innovation here is that, as we said before, NFTs and these digital objects and digital assets, they're scarce, meaning that there's only one of them. And so the ability to actually buy a piece of digital art and for that to mean something where you're not just saving A worthless copy of a picture, but you're actually owning in some way that is analogous to a human being owning a real painting, but in the digital realm. That's the innovation. Observationally, you'll see that people are spending more time than ever in the digital realm, and that their reputation and the signals around their reputation and how they choose an avatar to represent themselves and what credentials they choose. Does it mean to have a Harvard degree uh, in a digital realm? All of these things are essentially subject to renegotiation. Now there's a new path for them to, to take a creative object, something they make, and actually have economic transactions with their fans where their fans are buying from them these digital objects. And of course, because they're programmable, you can start inventing and attaching economic systems to them. So let's say you create a painting, and you sell it to me in an NFT format, and then I sell it to somebody else at 10 times the price, well, maybe there's a built in 10% royalty so that you get always some percent of the secondary sales. You don't have to talk to me about it. You don't have to ask me or call me or have a debt collection agency go after me for that. It's just executed by code at the very moment of that secondary transaction.
0: It sounds like this is as much about culture as it is about currency.
1: What's really important here and why this has been such a topic of excitement for people is that it's not merely a financial asset. You know, there are now communities whether on Twitter or in discord or the long tail of the internet that require you as a status symbol to have some particular NFT. In order to have credibility. So, you know, I mentioned what is the Harvard of, you know, crypto? Uh, it doesn't help you to say you worked at Goldman Sachs. It doesn't mean anything to say you went to Yale Law School. What is the signaling that you need to do in order to be a respected member of? This community and a participant and get access to resources and so on. And so we we're seeing kind of NFTs also having these social credentialing and signaling and kind of belonging attributes that are really novel and, and quite bizarre, to be honest with you.
0: Let's come back to something you brought up earlier. The casting of cryptocurrency and DeFi as a disruption to traditional finance should existing players who create and distribute financial instruments today be
1: worried if they're not worried by now about just the state of the world just in the on the software side then it's too late for them anyway they should have been worried five years ago and they should have been worried 10 years ago and they should have been worried the first time a teenager downloaded a song on napster because the, the arrow from that to now is you know, straight and inevitable. There are questions about how traditional finance should overlap and intersect with blockchain-based innovation. And there are threads around incorporating blockchain as part of existing technological infrastructure. And then there are other things like how do you access the crypto asset class and drive revenue for our clients. And if at this point you just have a blockchain team and you're listening to me describe these two things and you can't tell the difference between them, then for sure you're in so much trouble that it's going to be very hard to dig out. But if you look at the large financial institutions, they are on a three, four year journey into this, whether it's the consensus JP Morgan quorum work that we're doing together or whether it's consortia and trade finance, or whether it's all of the hedge funds that are now trying to get access to DeFi, I would say all of this integration is well underway. Let's try and tie in open banking. Open banking introduces
0: standards and protocols for securely integrating and aggregating financial services providers of all stripes, the fintechs and the banks. Do you think it could act as a bridge? Between the old
1: and the new. I think open banking and embedded finance are fantastic steps. They're a realization of some of the things that are wrong with banks blocking consumer data from the consumers that own that data or limiting competition from third party businesses that want to move money around or provide better user experiences. In my mental framework, I would say open banking is the crowbar that pulls the stuff that used to be manufactured into the new distribution layer. So you're forcing banks to API out customer information and payment rails and the ability to open accounts and make transactions and so on and so forth. And there's been a flurry of API-based embedded finance for every single asset class, which has resulted in these fintech footprints, um, as well as big tech footprints that shift distribution power away from the banks towards contextual footprints and intent about where the financial product is actually needed. I need a loan not in a bank branch. I need a loan when I'm buying the expensive Peloton at the moment of sale. I'm not going to go to a bank and get $2,000 as a loan. I'm just going to get it as a one-click button when I buy the Peloton. And I've never even touched a bank account on that shopping journey. This is a necessary transformation. And if anything, it's a necessary rescue of the unimaginable mess of the systems that underpin our financial infrastructure today.
0: Let's conclude with your prediction for the future. Do you think we go down a bad road where the regulators come and shut down exchanges and it's an us or them situation? Or do we go down a good road where the old and the new systems
1: find a way to get along? I think the best we can do is to reason by analogy You kind of have two bookends to the analogy. One is the payment rails, and then the second is the music industry. Like the kind case of the payment rails, you've got multiple ways to do a transaction that all achieve the same thing for the customer. You can take out cash from your wallet and give it to to somebody who maybe still accepts it, and that's your payment rail. Or alternately, you might swipe a card and That'll go through a point of sale system that is electronic and it will hit the, you know, the MasterCard or, or the Visa rails. Or you might contactless tap your Apple Pay, which has its own encryption and set of functionality that is sitting on top of some of the legacy stuff, but is separate and distinct. Or in the future, you might just use a stable coin, uh, a cash equivalent on a blockchain that's connected to a card or that lives in your phone uh, when you scan a QR code. And so at the least, you're going to have another digital rail that is likely to be in some ways faster, cheaper, more accessible, more interesting, more obvious to Gen Z and things of that nature. So in the down case, it doesn't go away, but it just becomes another frontier, another generation of these kind of solutions expanding out and becoming more technologically advanced. The other bookend is what's happened to to media and what's happened to transportation. And that is that once the actual object of the industry, the music file, the blog post, the taxi medallion has become digital, the whole value chain collapses in terms of the revenue it's able to charge and it's the digitally native players that survive. I think there is some chance, although it's certainly a black swan event, where the traditional finance industry and all of the assets that it generates is 50 to 100 trillion, and then the crypto industry is the 500 trillion of of value. We're certainly a long way off. It's impossible to to know. So the best thing we can try is to actually do and bring it to bear.
0: Wonderful. Where can our Listeners, find out more about you and your work with consensus.
1: Yeah, I'm easy to find. Check out Lex Ocalin on Twitter. For consensus, it would be consensus.net. And I also write a weekly newsletter at fintechblueprint.com that that covers all these themes. Also MetaMask, Metamask.io for your, your first crypto wallet. Easy to use, easy to get. Lex, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. El
0: Salvador recently became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Its president, like many others, sees cryptocurrency as a better option than fiat currency. In El Salvador, the new economy is already replacing the old. But, as we've heard, this isn't just about new kinds of currency. Thanks to smart contracts, smart developers can now build complex financial instruments on top of a crypto blockchain, opening the door to a reimagining of the entire economy. A whole new approach to money, known as decentralized finance, or DeFi. Lex describes DeFi as the manufacturing side of finance creating financial products in a way that is markedly different from the ivory towers where they are made today, aiming to replace existing players with something open, distributed, and continuously improved. All at once, the kind of monetary gymnastics that was once reserved for central banks and hedge fund managers is available to everyone, leading to yield farming, NFTs, and whole communities of digital natives who see the new economy as not only inevitable, but as just a small part of a larger transformation, that of the internet itself, as it evolves from the static Web 1.0 to the app-driven Web 2.0 to Web 3.0, an internet that inherently understands meaning and value. According to Lex, open banking is the crowbar that separates manufacturing from distribution, allowing these wholly new DeFi products to be delivered to customers right alongside the old. So, will this end up with the old and the new happily getting along, customers mixing and matching them as they please? Or will the new economy overtake The old, perhaps even replacing it altogether. No one knows. As Lex says, the best we can try is to do and bring it to bear. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years, and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.